We are continuing in looking at selected psalms, and where we find ourselves tonight is in another one of the psalms that have been designated to be a psalm of ascent. If you were with us last Sunday, this will be a bit of review. For those others who might uh, not have been here, this will seem maybe some fresh information. But these psalms of ascent are this group of psalms that run from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, 15 in total, which all bear the same superscription as being a song of ascent. It appears that they are given that designation because they were sung as part of the processionals that would uh, exist when people were coming into Jerusalem during the times of Jewish pilgrimage in, when they, in which they came from, from various differing places throughout the lands of the Jewish people and then would ascend into Jerusalem, ascend up Mount Zion and into the city in order to come to the temple. This uh, pilgrimage, this group mi migration was, was done as a part of the gatherings in Jerusalem to celebrate the religious feast days of the Jewish people. And though we, we don't really know when these songs were actually gathered together as a unit, as sort of a song sheet or hymnal, they all have this celebratory purpose, the same sort of purpose, even though the Psalms seem likely to have been written by differing authors and sometimes really covering vastly differing historic eras. Tonight we delve into Psalm 126, and while many of the Psalms seem to be ones that are written related to or during the reigns of, say, maybe a King David or a King Solomon, this psalm really seems to be written into a much later historic period. More on that in just a moment. But for now, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. We will read this psalm, and after reading it, I'll turn to the Lord in prayer to ask for His guidance in our understanding. So first, let's read the psalm together. Psalm 126. A Song of Ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of our Lord. And now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we, we come to this text tonight, as we come to this song of ascent, we ask that you would use it to gladden our hearts and that we would see truly that our restoration is found in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we would see the difference that Christ makes in our lives through this psalm, even though it is written many years before his coming. And Lord, please do that for us as we seek to, to understand your scriptures written so long ago through the lens of time and into our lives today. Lord, guide us, help us, instruct us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So when I preached here this morning, we were looking at the ending portions of Romans chapter 8, but we were 
also drawn. Those of you who were here will remember this. We were drawn also to consider as well the prophet Zechariah. And I mentioned at that time, that is in the morning, that Zechariah was a prophet writing during the post-exilic era of Israelite history. Well, by God's providence, this psalm of ascent, which we encounter tonight, also seems to be a psalm linked to that particular era of time. I didn't say so much about that this morning, about this particular period, and I will explore it more with you tonight. And I'll say a little more because it really does give us a little better sense of the time into which this psalm speaks. Now, logically, the fact that there is a post-exilic time, that is a time after an exile, well, that means that there would also be the time of the exile itself and also a pre-exilic time, a pre-exilic age in the history of Israel. And I'm sure all of you know that after the time of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites were led out of the land of Egypt by Moses through the parted Red Sea. They lived for a time of wandering in the wilderness. And then the Israelite people eventually crossed the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan as their leadership then transferred from Moses to Joshua. The Israelites then battled in that promised land. And after a time, they took possession of it. And eventually, they grew into a great nation. A great nation under a great king, King David. That Davidic kingdom would have been considered by many to be Israel's Camelot. It was an age of strength and growth and power and wealth for this one nation, this one nation above all the nations of the known world at that time. And then under David's son, Solomon, for a time, the prominence of Israel continued even more. Yet before too many years after Solomon, the kingdom would split so that the northern tribes of the Jewish people would form one kingdom with its principal city in Samaria. And that northern kingdom would retain that name, Israel. Then there was the southern kingdom, which was made up of the southern tribes. That was called Judah. And Judah's chief city, of course, was the great city of Jerusalem. Now, any of that history would have been history pre-exile. But as history went on from that time of the kingdom's division... Assyrian invaders would eventually enter Israel from the north and they would conquer Israel, that is, conquer the northern kingdom. And that's when the period of exile began. It began with the northern tribes being removed from their land by these Assyrian invaders. And next, a similar fate would follow for Judah. For them, it was a Babylonian invasion. The Babylonians came in and the Judahites were exiled then as well. With the final defeat of Judah coming with the conquering of that great city of Judah, Jerusalem. Then all the remaining Jewish people, they all went into exile, they all went into Babylon. Now once that final exile occurred, it would also be known as an ideal that the people of God would desire a restoration of that once great Davidic United Kingdom. The desire was for a future that sort of actually went back to the time when the land they once held was rebuilt to its prior preeminence. The great city would be rebuilt. The great temple to God would be rebuilt. And with that in mind, when we read about any restoration after the time of David in the Old Testament, 
the vision seems almost always to be one of wanting to bring back those good old days. In history, it would seem as if this much-desired restoration might have happened, in a sense, at the point of time in which the kingdom of Persia eventually defeated the Babylonians, and the Persian king, King Cyrus, then decreed that the Israelites could return to Jerusalem to rebuild. So there you have it, a brief history of ancient Israel and Jerusalem in two minutes. Of course, it's just a summary, perhaps an accurate summary, I hope an accurate summary. That is, except I would suggest for one omission, an omission of a most significant detail. And that detail is that God works providentially in all this history. All the events that I've just recounted are written about in the Bible in much greater detail than what I could ever cover in a short time. But in every case, the Bible makes it so clear that none of that history has occurred apart from the working of the mighty hand of God. The division of the kingdom, the invasion of Israel and Judah by foreign armies, the exile from the land God had given the Israelites was all according to the will of God as is all of history. And often what we find is that defeats and humiliations which occurred at the hand of God happened as a result of Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness to him. The invasions and the exiles are God's discipline. But God's discipline always seemed to come with a continuing promise of a future hope, a restoration from the exile, a restoration that was according to the providence of God. Well, this evening we have read a psalm about this restoration. But it's a psalm that also makes clear that the bringing of an exiled people back to a promised land is not completed. There is more to come. This psalm actually sings about a past restoration and a future one, at least future to that historic time. So we should read it trying to envision both past and future. But I also want to suggest to you something even more. When we read of restoration in the Old Testament, it's not only a restoration of people exiled from a geographical land and then restored to it. Nor is it a restoration while returning to the land to regain earthly fortune that one previously possessed. You see, there's also always a spiritual side to being restored, meaning that God's people have not only been exiled in a sense from a place, but they also have in a sense been exiled from their God. They need a restoration to Him. And that's not only important to know if you're returning one time, if you're a returning one time exile going back to Jerusalem. And it's not just important if you're a pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem for some feast day when singing a psalm like this. It's really most important for all people to know since sin has in a way made us all exiles. Exiles from God who are in need of the spiritual restoration to God. A restoration that can only be accomplished through our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, as we examine this psalm, I think it really is sort of easy to break it down into two sections. Two sections with an equal amount of verses in each section, three verses each. We have the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 3, and in that we read about a restoration already accomplished by God. 
And then as we read on in verses 4 through 6, there is a plea for a yet greater restoration still, and then an answer given to that plea. And while I do want to consider that division, in each case we also still need to be thinking beyond a tangible, more physical type of restoration, so that we also have in mind the spiritual truth that we find in each half. Well, in the first, of, first half, the first three verses, notice how it is written in the past tense. That's part of what, it makes, what makes this seem to be a psalm after the exile. The Lord has already restored the fortunes of Zion. But it's really the reactions to that restoration that really piques our attention most as we read these three verses. For the people who are restored or have been restored, well, the psalm sings about how they were like people who dream. And you can almost sense from words like that that the reality is that their restoration to Jerusalem was a restoration almost unexpected. Unexpected in a way that would really leave us with little doubt that these people would understand that their good fortune was in fact the work of God. If you know the history of that post-exilic time, you will know that the years of Israel in exile, physical exile, were 70 years. 70 years of captivity. But then enters that king, King Cyrus of Persia, his Persian kingdom conquers the Babylonian kingdom and he decrees that the Jewish people who had been captured by the Babylonians could now return to their homeland. He does that, or at least it seems from a human perspective that he does that, to better control the captured people of his defeated enemy. Send those captured people back to their original lands and they will be your ally rather than your enemy. But that's 70 years, followed by the freeing decree of Cyrus would have seemed like something that dreams are made of, a dream for people so long in captivity. The people are sensing now there is this new hope for the Jewish people who hardly really exist as the people they once were anymore. And so the psalm begins singing of this dreamlike aura surrounding this prior restoration. And then that's followed by the verbal reactions of the Jewish returnees and also by the non-Jewish nations in general. The mouths of the people, we are told, are filled with laughter. Shouts of joy were upon their tongues. They would say, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. That might not sound so much like a proper Presbyterian response, but that's a great response in light of any restoration that's worked by God. And when we start thinking beyond the physical restoration of an exiled people to a place, to a, a spiritual reality of what it means to be restored to God. Well, all we, we see, what we would do well to see, is that laughter and joy and gladness, acknowledgement of the great things done by God, really should be something that characterizes all the reactions of any people restored in any way in any time of history. And we Christians should be the most joyous of people in light of how, though rebels against God, we are restored to him through Jesus Christ. His great work redeems and restores an undeserving people, and thus perhaps an unexpected people, so great with gladness, would characterize the hearts of every Christian. Now notice as well, 
in these first three verses that there is also a response among the non-Jewish nations. Even before we read of how the people of God are saying the Lord has done great things for us, we read in the psalm of the nations saying the Lord has done great things for them. Often we fear what unbelieving people might say, what the nations might say. We fear that response whenever we declare the work of God. But maybe we really shouldn't be all that fearful. Certainly, some will see his work, of the nations will see his work, and even if they still for a time refuse to bend a knee, they might still see in some way the wonders that God has done. When we are restored, when we're transformed by God, when we live in a new way as new creatures, sometimes those who don't know Christ will stand in awe of how we seem to be so changed as people who now know Christ. Well, next we need to pick up the last three verses. And now in them there is a change in the tense of verbs as well. No longer is the psalmist writing of a restoration work by God which has already occurred. Now he is asking for still a greater restoration. What we read in verse 4 is a request that the Lord restore our fortunes like the streams of the Negev. That might be a reference that's sort of lost on people like us. But the Negev is a region that's normally desert-like. And in the times of the year when it was the rainy season, well, the ravines in that usually dry land would fill really with torrents of water. So the image is essentially one of a flowing or an even raging good fortune that is being asked for, asked of, by, uh, asked of God by the psalmist. In the context of the return of the Israelites to the promised land, we would see the desire is for more than just a return to a destroyed Jerusalem. Now it's a request for a restoration to that Davidic-like great United Kingdom. And you can sense also that spiritual side to this psalm as well. The desire is for a more glorious future with the Lord, which in the context of the spiritual is what the Christian could envision as we are directed to see our future glory. A glory with God, a glory with His Christ, and a consummated kingdom of God. We who know Christ, I think, should see this psalm and imagine that great day. But the part of this closing section that I find even more compelling in a spiritual sense are the last two verses of the psalm. And part of my awe at reading these verses, just like before, is related to the grammar that's being used. You see, in these last two verses, instead of considering the tense of verbs, I would ask that you pay attention more to the pronouns. In verse 5, the pronoun is plural. It's the word those. And those in the context of the psalm is referring to those group of people. Those people, these people who sow in tears, who will reap with shouts of joy. Now that image is a, an agricultural one and not one that is all that difficult to understand. It really is acknowledging that tears can accompany the sowing of seed. The idea presented is that sowing seed can really be hard work. And if hard work and toil, it could bring tears to one's eyes. But then again, the hard work is uh, something that also is followed 
with joy, a joy that comes with the reaping, like the restoration already written about earlier leads to those shouts of joy as well. And those words of verse 5 sound very much like an answer from God to the prior request that the fortunes would be restored like the streams in the Negev. God, in fact, will reverse the fortunes of his people, reverse their fortunes by replacing the suffering they endure with blessings that come from him. Now, finally, when moving to the last verse, verse 6, you read that and it sounds pretty much like it could just be a a parallel reiteration of what has been just said before in verse 5. Hebrew poetry really has a way of emphasizing a single point by repeating it for a second time, but in a slightly different way. It would be as if the psalmist is just repeating for effect that those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy as they bring in sheaves, bring in a harvest. But that's really not what the psalm says. It doesn't say those people. It doesn't say they in the plural. And I cannot help but notice that there is a movement then as well from those plural to he, masculine, in the singular. A plural to the singular as one moves from verse 5 to verse 6. You might accuse me, I think, of making too much of a slight change in a pronoun. But the move to speak of he leads me to start thinking of Jesus Christ. Today is the day that many in the world acknowledge according to the Hebrew calendar of Jesus entering Jerusalem at the beginning of the week that would end with his crucifixion. His entry into Jerusalem would have been on an occasion when these pilgrimage songs of ascent would normally be sung by the people entering the city. And do you remember what Luke wrote about Jesus in his gospel as Jesus is on his ascent to the city of Jerusalem? Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, the verses we previously read. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace. But they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem. He's weeping at a time of the joyous feast days. He is weeping even as he comes, bearing the seed for sowing. He bears in what he is about to do, the seed of the gospel, which, if believed, would mean the grandest restoration for all of Jerusalem. And though he will be rejected by a people who did not know the time of his visitation, it will still be that through his work, in time, there will be shouts of joy as he will be the one bringing his sheaves with him. There is a harvest ahead, a harvest of salvation, a spiritual reality of many being restored to God. 
And maybe this also would bring to mind the parable of the sower. It's a parable found in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the parable of the sower, the sower sows seed and does so really indiscriminately. Some of the seed falls on a path with no soil. Some falls on rocky ground with little soil upon it. Some falls on soil which contains thorns. And in each of those cases, the seed is taken away or fails to produce its crop. But when it falls on good soil, it grows, yielding 30, 60, or 100-fold. The seed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is a sower of his seed. And there will be shouts of joy when the fertile soil produces its fruit, even though the sowing has been done with tears. The existence of lost who will remain unredeemed, unrestored to God, should really bring us all to tears, just as it brought Jesus to tears. But through the tears, in the end there will still be laughter. There will still be shouts of joy. There will be gladness for the harvest of sinners who are being restored to God. May we be among those restored and be like those who have dreamed. Let's pray.